the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Our main responsibility, simply put, is we have to all defend our bean patch. We have to all take a stand for what is important and defend those things that are worth dying for. Your bean patch, if you will, is your family. It's your faith. It's your life. And there are some things that are valuable enough that are worth dying for where you take your stand, you say, I'm not going to give up this ground. This is important. This is vital. And I'm willing to die defending it. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Nehemiah. Having someone or something of such great value that we would die defending is both a blessing as well as a great responsibility. While the world might put value on material wealth or specific prized possessions, we as believers put such value on our family and faith. In today's message, Pastor Gary teaches us about the importance of protecting our faith, family, and friends without compromise. In our study, we learn that one of the most powerful sources of strength and diligence to do so comes from none other than prayer. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in Nehemiah 4 for part one of today's message titled, Fight for Your Family. Today we're here in Nehemiah chapter 4. So if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. We spent seven weeks in chapter 3 looking at the gates around the city of Jerusalem and the modern parallel that we can understand how it applies to our lives today. And now we're back here in Nehemiah. We're in chapter 4. promise I won't spend seven weeks in chapter 4, only today. But I'm going to read at the beginning here just the first nine verses. It says this, When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. Notice that, his emotion. Angry, greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building... If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. So notice now verse 4, the Israelites pray. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. 
Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. There's a little-known story in 2 Samuel chapter 23 about one of David's mighty men. The Bible says that King David had 37 mighty men. These were the best and brightest of his army in Israel. And 2 Samuel 23 records uh, these 37 heroes, these mighty men of David. There's one guy among the 37. His name is Shammah. And he's a relatively unknown person because he only gets two verses in all of the Bible. And I'm going to show you what the verses are on the screen. 2 Samuel 23, middle of verse 11 and verse 12. This is what it says. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, those are beans, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down. And the Lord brought about a great victory. And please notice again, and the Lord brought about a great victory. But this guy's claim to fame, only two verses in the Bible. It's not that he single-handedly conquered a city or rescued a maiden or slew a giant. This guy's single claim to fame was that he defended a bean patch. That's it. He puts himself in the middle of this bean patch. Philistines are coming. He basically says to them, this is my bean patch, not your bean patch, and I'm going to fight to defend it. And that's what he does. All the other Israelites fled. Shema stood his ground, didn't give up an inch. He defended what was important to him. And that's what lands him in the pages of the Bible. Now, friends, listen, you don't have to make a splash on the world. If you do, great. But our main responsibility, simply put, is we have to all defend our bean patch. We have to all take a stand for what is important and defend those things that are worth dying for. Your bean patch, if you will, is your family. It's your faith. It's your life. And there are some things that are valuable enough that are worth dying for where you take your stand. You say, I'm not going to give up this ground. This is important. This is vital. And I'm willing to die defending it. Now, that's basically what is happening here in Nehemiah 4. The scene is the Israelites are under attack. Now, at first, it's basically a war of words. You have two guys here, Sanballat and Tobiah, who are coming against the Israelites, and it starts out with them just trash-talking. But you have to understand this whole scene of Nehemiah chapter 4 in light of one key verse. I want you to look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, After I looked things over, this is Nehemiah talking, After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. 
Nehemiah is calling the people to stand their ground, defend their bean patch, so to speak. And the most important thing is not the city. The city's important, and they've been working hard to rebuild the city. But he doesn't say, I want you to stand your ground and fight for your city. He says, I want you to stand your ground, and I want you to fight for your sons and your daughters and your wives and your brothers and your sisters and your homes. I want you to defend your family. I want you to fight for what is important and defend the family that is being attacked here. Now, the two guys that are coming against the Israelites, Sanballat and Tobiah, the Bible says that Sanballat was a governor of Samaria. He's not a Jew. This is Samaria. This is the northern province above Jerusalem to the north. He's standing, the Bible says, with his army. It tells us there in the presence of his army in verse 2. And he starts just taunting the Israelites with these questions in verse 2. What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Next to him is a guy named Tobiah. He is an Ammonite. Now, Ammon represents east of Israel, which is modern-day Jordan. He is also an enemy of Israel. And and he adds fuel to the fire. So Sanballat's like asking these questions like, who do these Jews think they are? Do they really think they can rebuild this city? What do they think they're doing? And Tobiah joins in. He's like, yeah, you know what? If even a little fox, delicate as it is, were to jump up on their precious wall that they're rebuilding, it would all crumble. Yeah, yeah. And they're going back. And they're just jawing, all right? But, but don't be deceived. Underneath all this trash talk is deep-seated anger and hostility towards the Jews. Notice when we were reading verse 1, it says Sanballat was, became angry and was greatly incensed. They are angry at who the Jews are and what the Jews are doing. The Jews have completed 70 years of captivity in Babylon. They've come back and resettled their land. And they've been rebuilding Jerusalem that has been in rubble since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it in 586 BC. So all they're trying to do is reestablish their lives. And rebuild their city. But you've got some people opposed to them. We don't like you. We don't like what you're doing. And the Jews knew it was more than just idle chatter. That the war of words would escalate to a war of weapons. And therefore, the Israelites were extra guarded about what was going on here. They understood This is going to escalate to a war of weapons. And that's exactly what happens here. Look at verses 6 through 9 again. Verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So you see, they've now moved from just John to now we're going to pick up weapons. We're going to go fight them. And I love the response of the Jews in verse 9. But we prayed. Underline that in your Bibles. But we prayed. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Now, this is not the first time that they prayed because we read a moment ago in verses 4 and 5 
they had prayed earlier, and the recorded prayer is given to us in verses 4 and 5. Let me read it again. I know I'm jumping around a little bit in this chapter, but I want to frame the whole scene here. Verse 4, here's their first prayer. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. This is some pretty raw emotion right here as they're praying this. I mean, notice here, they're like, don't cover up their guilt or blot out their sins. They're like, God, sick them. And by the way, show no mercy. Go get them, blot out their names. Don't give them any mercy. Don't wipe out their sins. Hold it against them. Get them, God. Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands. Have you ever played a go, go get them, God kind of a prayer? Somebody you don't, somebody's hurt you, wounded you, done something offensive. It maybe can be anything as innocent as somebody's cut you off on I-495. And you're like, get them, God, you know, all right? God can take our get them, God prayers. I mean, he's a big God. I'm not saying that's always the best. But even when you look in Psalms, David had a few God get them prayers. There was a few in the book of Psalms where David's like, Lord, get my enemies, kill them, to send them to the pit. I really don't want to see them again. And so God can take our raw emotion if it's just between us and the Lord, all right? And these people are just, they're giving God raw emotion, but they're praying. And they understood that the greatest weapon against their enemies was prayer. That when they were being attacked or assaulted or about to be, they prayed. They understood the importance of prayer. We need to understand the importance of prayer. Oswald Chambers said this, quote, We tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. End quote. It is true. We need to be praying, people. The Israelites were praying people. They prayed. They said, Lord, you see the threats. You, see the, you hear the insults, you, you, the mocking, the ridicule. Lord, and they prayed. But it's not all that they did. They understood that their family was in the crosshairs. They realized that they had to defend their family, and they took a twofold approach. It was both prayerful and practical. They didn't only pray, and they didn't only resort to practical things. It was prayerful and practical even look at verse 9 again where it says but we prayed to our god it doesn't end there it says and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat all right that's practical it's like we're going to pray and we're going to ask god we need to understand the balance between prayerful and practical if we only pray and we don't put our prayer life to action then we we're, not, we're only doing half of what is the responsibility on our part Sure, God is sovereign. We pray, we trust him. But God also wants us to put some things into action. He gave us brains. He wants us to do things as well as seek him first and pray. Their approach was prayerful and practical. Look, look further in the story here, verses 11 through 13. Verse 11 says, Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. All right, so now the threats are legit here. Now they, they just are coming right out saying, we're going to kill you. We just want to kill you and your families and put an end to your work. Look at verse 12. 
Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Don't you love friends like that? People in your life are just telling you over, ten times over, they were just the Debbie Downers, the Danny Downers, the people who are like always like saying things into your life over and over again, ten times over, like, you know what, they're going to they're gonna kill us. They're going to they're gonna kill us. They're going to, all right already, we're here. We know this. Look at verse 13. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their, note this, swords, spears, and bows. You talk about practical. Whoa. Swords, spears, and bows. Nehemiah. What in the world? What are you doing here? Are you some kind of Second Amendment freak? What is going on with you? Arming all the people. You know that Nehemiah had an NRA bumper sticker in the back of his chariot. You know he does here. He's saying, all right, everybody take up swords. Yeah, we're going to pray, but we're going to take up some swords too here. We're going to take up some swords. We're going to take up some bows and some spears here. Wait a minute. Some of you, I thought Christians are supposed to be meek and mild. I thought Christians are supposed to, you know, turn the other cheek, that kind of stuff, be peaceful people. Well, yeah, sure. But let me ask you a question. When did meekness become weakness? When did peace become passive? Nehemiah says, we're going to pray. We're also going to do something about this imminent threat. We're going to post some people, defensively speaking, with arms, weapons, Because our families were dying for. We're going to protect our families from the attack that is imminent here. And so, that's the key verse again. Verse 14. Middle of verse 14. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Similarly, look down further. Verse 16. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Note this, okay? Picture the whole scene. You got this imminent threat from Sanballat, Tobiah, the Ammonites, the Samaritan people, the Arabs, the people of Ashdod. They're ready to come in. Nehemiah knows this. We're not just going to be people who just sit around in prayer circles and sing kumbaya. We're going to take up some swords. And he has his workers with one hand. They have the material. With the other hand, they got a sword. It's like, all right, give me a stone. Give me a stone. Give me a stone. All right, quick. Hurry up. Hurry up. Because the adrenaline's high. You know it's high here. Like, give me a stone. All right, great. All right, slap some mortar on. Slap some mortar. Come on. I'm looking around with my other hand with the sword here. Slap some, good, good. All right, good. All right, give me another stone. Give me another stone. Hurry up. Give me another stone. Put some, slap some mortar on it. Come on, let's go. And that's what they're doing. They, and they rebuild the wall like that. The material in one hand, a weapon in the other. Because the family, there are some things in life worth dying for. Your family's worth dying for. Your faith, your personal life. There's some things that are important to defend. Not aggressively assault, but defend. You know who else in the Bible told his followers to pick up some swords? Jesus did. It's an often overlooked passage, but it's Luke 22. The scene is, it's the end of the Last Supper. At the end of the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 22, verse 36, if you have a cloak, sell it and buy a sword. 
you're going to need a sword. That's what he tells him to do. He knows he's about ready to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knows things are going to get ugly. And he tells his disciples, if you have a cloak, sell it and buy a sword. Well, apparently, a couple of them had a couple already stashed underneath their little tunics. Because in Luke twenty-two thirty-eight, the disciples said, well, we have two. Is that enough? And Jesus says, that's enough. <laughs> you know Peter had one of those swords. You know Peter had one of those. Jesus says, okay, that's enough. Now they go off to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now please note, there are two swords among 12. 11 apostles, Judas is gone, and Jesus. Okay, there's 12, two swords. It's not like Jesus is recruiting or training an army here, okay? That's not his objective, okay? It's just two swords among 12. And it's not that he is recommending to use those swords in any kind of offensive, aggressive, violent way. Because the moment Peter does, he gets rebuked. Remember in the garden, they go to the garden. Things get chaotic when the, when the Romans come to arrest Jesus. Peter draws his sword. It says he cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. You know he was going for his head. He's just a bad shot, all right? <laughs> cut off his ear, and Jesus immediately rebukes him. He says, put your sword back. He who draws the sword will die by the sword. And the last miracle recorded that Jesus does is to pick up the ear off the ground and slap it back on that guy's head, having to fix another one of Peter's messes. All right, here, all right, Peter, here, just, I'm going to slap it back here and make, your, make, it, make it just right. But anyway, can you imagine if Peter actually was successful and hit the whole head? That would have been an even more awesome miracle, wouldn't that have been? <laughs> Put the head back on, spin it around. It's been incredible. My point is, though, notice when Peter tried to use the sword aggressively, violently, offensively, Jesus rebuked him, put it back. So in other words, two swords among 12, not an army. Peter gets rebuked for doing something aggressively. The idea is Jesus is saying, defend yourself. It's okay to defend yourselves. It's okay to defend what is important. Now, look, I do personally believe... And I said this on our Q&A Sunday back in January. I got a question in all four services about Second Amendment, right to bear arms, all this kind of stuff. I do personally believe that Nehemiah 4, Luke 22, is a basis for why if, you, if this is a personal decision every family has to make, okay? I personally believe that Nehemiah 4 and Luke 22 are scriptural basis for why it's okay to defend yourselves to bear arms. All right, never to aggressively assault or violently use weapons to harm or injure anyone, but on the basis of self-defense. I think Nehemiah 4 and Luke 22 make a strong case for that, but that's your personal, you have to make that personal decision. I don't want this teaching to be about the Second Amendment, though, all right? But I'm mentioning swords and spears because we see it in the story here. What I want this to really be about is how can we prayerfully and practically defend our families, and our story through Ezra and Nehemiah, we've been making a long list of things important to our church and what we need to be about and how we need to be encouraged and challenged. So it's number 20 on the list, if you've been keeping track. We must fight to defend our families in prayerful and practical ways. Now, you're not going to get this point if you think that our families are not under assault. Because then you'll read this and you'll go, what, what, what do you mean fight to defend? What, what, you know, what, what is happening? Listen, you know, unless you've been living under a rock the last five to ten years, Christians specifically, and therefore Christian families 
generally are under attack. It is happening in our world today. And let me tell you the three primary fronts that the attack is coming, okay? Physically, spiritually, and culturally. That's all we have time for today on Cornerstone Connection. We're so glad you've taken the time out of your day to join us for a period of learning and encouragement for your life. If you were blessed by today's teaching, we'd encourage you to share it with someone you feel could use a little blessing as well. You can find and share this and many additional messages online at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also subscribe to our podcast or take us with you on the go with our mobile app. Pastor Gary has also created companion resources that go along with some of the studies he's done. These are available on our website as well. Again, that address is cornerstoneconnection.cc. We at Cornerstone Connection believe that life is done better in community. Are you part of a local body of believers? For those of you in the Leesburg, Virginia area, we'd like to invite you to join us in person at Cornerstone Chapel. Come to our weekend services and find a warm group of people who would love to be your community. Weekend services are held Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. And we have a midweek gathering on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope you'll come back next time as Pastor Gary continues through the book of Nehemiah on Cornerstone Connection. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.